Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace be upon you, and welcome to this week's edition to Pathway to Peace, a show which takes an analytical look at the current issues and trends affecting us all. Trying to find the answers to problems that affect our political peace, economic peace, social peace, and maybe the noblest of them all. Inner peace. This week we'll be focusing on attaining political peace. In an article published on the BBC News website back on the 6th of July, titled Arabs Believe Economy is Weak Under Democracy, nearly 23,000 people were interviewed across nine countries uh, across the Middle East and North Africa for BBC News Arabic by the Arab Barometer Network. Most agreed with the statement that an economy is weak under a democracy. The findings came just over a decade after the so-called Arab Spring protests calling for democratic change. Less than two years after the protests, just one of those countries, Tunisia, remains a democracy. But a draft constitution recently published could push the country back towards authoritarianism, if approved. Michael Robbins, director of Arab Barometer, a research network based in, based at Princeton University, which works with universities and polling organisations in the Middle East and North Africa, says there's been a regional shift in views on democracy since the last survey which was conducted in 2018-19. He says there's a growing perception that democracy is not a perfect form of government and it won't fix everything, he says. What he carries on though saying, what we see across the region is people going hungry, people need bread, People are frustrated with the systems that they have. That's why this week's programme is titled Democracy. Is it fit for purpose? My name is Galeem Anwar and I'm your host for today's programme. With me in the studio to attempt to dissect this topic and its many encompassing issues is fellow Pathway to Peace presenter Shams Najim. So, uh, Asalaamu Alaikum and a warm welcome to you, Shams. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, coming on this one. Um, I know... Uh, Politics maybe not your yeah. uh, your 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 subject of uh, preferred subjects, yeah. but 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 I guess it, it affects everyone, doesn't it? It's part. It's, it's you can't escape it. Well, to, to be fair, th- this may may be the reason why politics isn't my favorite subject because I see such yeah. Well, yeah. The dramas. The dramas. Yeah. Uh, well, and 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 obviously, what's been going on in the UK in, in the UK scene at least in the UK pol- political scene and and and. and, and the UK is not the only exception to the rule. Obviously, there's obviously all sorts of issues happening across the world, particularly the Western world. Um, but uh, but in the UK in particular, it, uh, yeah, obviously. So we've the prime minister has resigned, um, and we're in a situation where and I, I was just listening to sort of the news before I came in, and we find ourselves in a situation where, and these might be the, the Tory party rules, but the prime minister has resigned. It is now over. Now that the MPs of the Conservative Party have whittled down the candidates to two, um, so we have Rishi Sunak and, and, and Liz Truss, those two is put to a vote across the Conservative Party membership. And, and they, I'm not sure the exact numbers, maybe north of 100,000 members. And so those 100,000 plus members now have a right to vote on who should be the next Prime Minister. 
So who should be the next prime minister who will sort of rule over 60 million, mm. you know, population? So people are already sort of shouting out sort of a, there's a democratic deficit there, that what's going on, that seems a bit, you know, the, these are these are sort of the things that start to the the, the cracks are sort of expo- being exposed now. Um, mm. And then and, and I, I, there was one other thing I'll mention which I thought was really interesting. And you you know thanks to good old Twitter for this, but someone had sort of mentioned on Twitter that um, you, you know you there's the option for you, you can become a member of the Conservative Party uh, if you live overseas. You don't even live in the country. That I think there's a group called Conservatives Abroad, and if you pay sort of a twenty five pound membership, um, you're a member. Um, you get a you get a, you get a you get a voice on on who who the prime minister of this country will be. Now I don't I'm not singling out the Tory Party. Or I know I know it looks like I am. I'm sure these rules sort of apply across all the political parties, and you know, and it's well, this is it. This is what we're trying to kind of have a, have a look at today. That you're right. Maybe it's for the, it's for reasons such as this where people are starting to people. I would say the British public were were quite a trusting public is that fair to say in the past do you think that's the case now I, well i think we can clearly see it's not the case now i think we can yeah. i think we can see over the last few years it's it's not the case but when i try and think back to why i've always kind of been disengaged with politics yeah. and the system and how it works and often a few things spring to mind and and one of them is is this type of situation where we now have people battling to sort of take uh the throne uh yeah and i've never really liked how it's how it's how it's done um yeah. I, I know this is sort of inter party but you know yeah. where it's sort of been between uh opposing parties it's it's always this i won't won't go as far as call it a bloodbath but yeah, it is ruthless it, though, it, it? it it can get ruthless and it's just yeah. and i think i was just saying to you before the show as well it feels as if you know they they're pressed and pushed into positions to yeah to have an answer for everything and we kind of lose the 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 human side of things where yeah. things change things can develop and and people can make mistakes and right now there's this hawkeye on on sort of politics and and you can't step a foot wrong so in in one sense I kind of feel sorry for yeah. for these guys who yeah. who are taking these top seats but yeah. you know here and there when I when I do listen into the comments and it's, it's just a bit of a joke isn't it it's just uh, no, that's a very valid point I mean I, yeah when I I, I, I I'd, I'd admit the sort of the nerd in me. I, I watch, uh, I watch kind of prime minister's questions on a Wednesday, twelve o'clock, and and you're right. If anyone, if anyone was to sort of tune into that, and you could just see, I mean, that's what they call it, sort of the punch and Judy politics. It's just just shouting across the floor, mm. and and you think, well, what benefit? What, what benefit does that serve? It's just, it is a shame. When I, yeah, when I, yeah, and you know, this is this is not trying to target an individual. When I see someone who's meant to be in in a position of sort of authority leadership mm. just standing there and just sort of berating sort of other individuals i just think yeah if you had any credit it's gone and i just i feel like it's not even their fault i think that's just how the system has become but i think that yeah. is a massive just going back to sort of your point that's a massive reason for why there's a loss of trust um Obviously, aside from the antics and and the behaviour of some of the individuals within politics, which I'm sure will sort of try and cover off in, from a wider sense of you know democratic rule, yeah. but it, yeah, it, as I said, I, c- I can only really say it just just it's a bit of a joke, really, yeah. um, and yeah. and yeah. and you, c- you you can see why people are 
losing faith and trust and we've seen that over the course of covid and the last few years and then the economic decline um and the pressures on us now at the moment and yeah obviously the first thing that um society will do is, is turn to the leaders and say yeah. and ask the questions right why are why are it's, fuel it's, prices so high and why true. has this happened and yeah. why is brexit taken the course that is taken and this sort of stuff so you expect answers and then yeah we live in an age where the media captures everything and so yeah when it's showing you these individuals who are or or, or the political system which is supposed to be yeah yeah i suppose overseeing the society is it just well, you don't have much trust left this is it i mean people look to them for answers right so yeah what, 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 yeah, what do you expect i suppose um i mean coming back to this article then um which sort of was the reason for why I guess we this this became the topic for this week's um, episode of Pathway to Peace? Um, so this there was uh, this article on the BBC website um, by Jesse Williams, Sarah Habershon, and Becky Dale, um, published on sixth of July, uh, and uh, the title I'll say again: Arabs believe the economy is weak under democracy, um, and there's some some interesting findings actually. So I'm just and I'm just I'm just going to actually just read through some of the statistics that they found where people were more interested uh, there's got a sort of an infographic mm. here people were more interested in effect, people were more interested in effective government than the form it takes so they weren't so much they, they took a poll they weren't so much interested in, in what was the nature of that political system um, uh, but just rather that whatever you know whatever they do it's, you know they govern kind of effectively and so this statement was was sort of read out, and, and of 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 the of, of the of the survey, seventy nine percent of people agreed with that statement that people were more interested in effective government than the form it actually takes. So that so that's seventy nine percent in Iraq, seventy seven percent in Tunisia, seventy seven percent in Libya, seventy six percent in Jordan. And, and and the thing is, you can see a pattern emerging there. These are quite. Well, not even quite. Very troubled states, That's given what say, yeah. what's happened recently, or in the last few years, last five years uh, or more. Um, and yeah, well, you know, what do the, the people expect? I mean, you, you know, the politicians are elected, um, and it, there's a trust element there. They're there to sort of they're governing the masses. They've 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 been given the masses have put them there. Um, they've sort of placed their trust in them, and so. Obviously, they looked at them to sort of, you know, solve, solve solve the problems of the day. Yeah, and 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 that's it, isn't it? It's 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 a results based business. Yeah. Um, yeah. You you want no one really cares how the party's made up and all of these elections mm. and like I feel like sort of within the society we live in this, you know, going to vote and you know yeah. the hype around these. Um, yeah at times of sort of election and and people have their ways of trying to promote themselves it's all irrelevant really ultimately it's down to how are the people on ground being treated and how do they feel that these policies are affecting them um and are they you know yeah are they are they good for them um really it's secondary how the party is made up or yeah or yeah, I mean, just on that, you, yeah, you raise a valid point that I should have probably said at the at the outset. I mean, I am kind of painting this in very simplistic terms when I when I'm sort of judging, you know, democracy is it fit for purpose? The notion of democracy. I mean, what type of democracy? There are various forms. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, we have um, uh, obviously in, in in Britain, we're you know we're known as sort of a, 
a representative democracy where we, you know, we have representatives elected by the people and, and entrusted to carry out the business of governance. Um, things like uh, a constitutional democracy. We don't have a constitution here in the UK, but other countries, such as Australia, uh, where a constitution outlines who will represent the people. Um, but but obviously they they also have there's an element of representative democracy as well naturally where you've, the point being made here that that form of that sort of that pure form of uh, what they know as known as direct democracy this is this sort of Athenian concept which literally you know it's it's one man one vote but 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 every but the, essentially the whoever is eligible to to vote what can I say? It's almost like referendums every day, basically. I mean, this was the sort of the Greek concept um, in a direct democracy, such as ancient Athens, all citizens, but in those days it was only adult males, who had completed their military training, which was interesting. Um, so women, slaves... Oh, only they could vote. Only they could okay. vote. Women, slaves, they couldn't vote. Mm-hmm. This is obviously just ancient, ancient Athens. Um, they, were, they were invited to part, uh, so mil- military trained sort of uh, men were invited to participate in all political decisions. Um, so they, they sort of voted on everything, anything and everything. I mean, that's not really well. I was going, I was actually going to make the statement that's not really practical in, in sort of twenty first century life. Hence, the reason why we we elect representatives who then sort of take those decisions on our part on our behalf. But I was just going to say, but we we live in a. <laughs> The, the the speed of which technology is, I mean, it, it could be possible. <laughs> I'm not saying that we should. Um, I mean, already, um, well, daily I'll, votes. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nothing would ever get done. <laughs> but um, but then there's also the argument to be had about our referendums. I mean, that's that's a whole other show. But you know, our referendums are they actually even fit for purpose? Given the way, I mean, this is you know not to sort of rehash the sort of the Brexit debate. But I mean, these are some of the arguments that were said about the Brexit sort of referendum. That were, were the sort of the, the voting public given enough information? Was it clear? This is the point. I Should was they gonna, have been entrusted with that, that? That's exactly the point I was going. I was yeah. going to actually ask you the question that yeah. in 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 situations where you know you're you're asking the wider public to make a decision, yeah, A against B or yes and no, yeah, are they learned enough? Yeah, um, does it come down to? I mean, yeah, you mentioned technology. We know now that it's very easy to target. Yeah. Um, you know, your yeah. phones are basically your life, and yeah. it's very easy to to sort of get into someone's life through their phones and target sort of these sort of campaigns. Yeah. So, yeah, again, you know, it's not it's not something I have an answer to, but it's all it's always been a question that is that is that the right way? Yeah. Where the masses who are not educated on um, certain you know, complex issues are being asked to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. And we saw that. We saw that when um we saw that when Brexit happened, we saw um yeah. you know experts come out and and say actually had this campaign not run like this and, and these thread of lies not been fed, this yeah. is you know, it would have been different. But mm. I mean yeah. what's happened has happened. My you know, the point is that yeah, do, do these referendums work, and and does the voting system yeah. really work in, in 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 the way it is now? Exactly. Um, coming back to this article about um, Arabs believing economies weak under a democracy, there was another poll um, that was put to them to to the sample. Um, so the statement was um, whether they agreed or disagreed with this statement, and the statement is the country needs a leader who can bend the rules to get things done. That was the question. And um, 
What was interesting is that at the top of the list, you had 87%. So we look at Iraq at the top of the list, where 87% of uh, the people polled in Iraq agreed with that statement that a country does need a leader who can bend the rules to get things done. And and so conversely, 13% disagreed with that statement. So that's, that's I mean, that's a shame. I mean, that's, that's not something to be proud of, that, mm. that, that statistic. But then you go, you look down the list, and so where it gets a bit 50-50, the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian territories, 51% agreed to that statement and 47% disagreed that you shouldn't have a leader who bends the rules. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not in any way sort of condoning, you know, that, you know, that, because in, in no situation, in no situation should you have a leader who can bend the rules to get things done. But I suppose, is, is it out of desperation? I mean, yeah. you know, is that is that why they have taken that view? Both, uh, yeah. As in, even even the fifty fifty, when uh, you know, have some of have some of the countries seen mm. leaders bend the rules and mm. then it reflect on the society at large and have sort of a massive negative impact. Have they seen that happen? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, are making the decision yeah. based off of that or? Yeah. You know the countries in question here. Yeah. It's, it's quite easy to see that the their countries that have been through the turmoil exactly um, and been through sort of leadership crisis and, and yeah and and it's and it's the state in which they live. I mean, the last sort of infographic that I'm going to read out here is when the when the question was put to them, the food if the, the statement the following statement is read to them, the food we bought did not last and we did not have money to get more. Sixty eight percent of Egyptians. Agreed with that statement. It's, you know, we're talking it's just over two, two and three people agreed with that statement. Um, and the, the figures are not that. You know, Sudan was sixty-three percent, Iraq was fifty-seven percent, Tunisia fifty-five percent. So it's really, really, you know, bad times. You know, really, really bad times. Um, and I can't really help think that that is naturally sort of shaping their view of of, of politics. Yeah, I think just 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 reading that is a bit t- distasteful, isn't it? To yeah. in the modern world um, that we live in now, um, for people to not not even have enough money to buy food. Yeah, and you would expect them. The first thing they're going to do is turn to their leadership and turn to sort of those in power and say, "Yeah, what's going on here?" Um, and yeah. yeah, I mean, we've th- there's obviously certain. Um, situations that happen across the world which exacerbate some of these problems and um, but yeah you know economy is probably the biggest thing isn't it yeah 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 the biggest issue on everyone's mind yeah exactly and that will always sort of that will shape people's opinions on on, on, you know of of what good is the vote if you can't get bread on the table basically Um, and it, it got me thinking you know as I was kind of as part of the research for the show there was a, an article going back going back a bit. Um, this is back in January 2020, probably just at the beginning of the pandemic, really, where it, the title of the article on the BBC website was Dissatisfaction with Democracy at Record High. Um, so dissatisfaction with democracy within developed countries is at its highest level in almost 25 years, according to the University of Cambridge researchers. Um, and so... And it's interesting. So it says that the UK and United States had particularly high levels of discontent. Um, so, it, you know, it's it, there's obviously something happening. Um, and like, as I said before, I mean, the, the West, you know, even the West are not sort of, uh, they're not 
kind of escaping this. Their citizens are also having uh, the same view. Um, I mean, well, yeah. yeah, again, my limited understanding of it, the, we we saw the financial crash in yeah. 2008 yeah. and then, you know, it seems as if we're living in sort of a zigzag type society mm. or life mm. where things go really well and then drop and go really well and then drop. And so you're, you're obviously going to have... Yeah. Um, you know, people, yeah. masses that yeah. are going to be dissatisfied with that. And especially in sort of the Western world where you wouldn't expect yeah. there to be situations like what we're living in now, which is salaries are not enough for people. Like we've just read that statement, but that was from, you know, countries where we uh, we know that there's been mm. major trouble and yeah. major issues. Yeah. And people in this country who feel like they're in a developed world yeah. have the opportunity to work but even now even the finances that they're given here yeah. um are not funding them are not you know it's not enough for them to yeah. to put bread on the table yeah. um so of course they're going to have that sort of reaction and and mm. and have a, you know be dissatisfied with yeah. with the leadership yeah. yeah there's an interesting line in this article it says <clears throat> um it it warns of a loss of confidence in democracy and says mm. the rise of populism is not so much a cause but a symptom and that's interesting because i i was thinking about this before before the show that yeah was was it populism that has led to sort of a distrust in 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 sort of in, demo, in democratic systems but but no I suppose academics would argue that right it wasn't it wasn't so much the cause it's actually almost the result it's a consequence of 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 the sort of the the situation that we find ourselves in, um, yeah. I'm just I'm just trying. I'm, I don't know what comes after that. I'm just trying to think. What do you get after populism? Then, well, I guess we're seeing it. We're seeing it in, in terms of the way the behaviour of nation states how they're playing out. Yeah, and also um, it feels like I think I've said. Yeah, we've we, we've kind of touched upon this previously as well. It feels yeah. like the world has become a much smaller place. Yeah. And the political playground yeah. has just become. That's true. In terms, like it's it's not just one country now, and I think people can yeah. really understand that now. Whereas in the seventies and eighties, you may not have seen that as much. Yeah. But now, it's clearer for people to see because of the rise of things like Twitter and the media, yeah. that you can see countries sort of uh, dare to use the word colluding with one another yeah. and yeah. and and forming those relationships, and you can see. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that. That does have an effect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think people do do. do you, you can you can see you can see right through that, and people, no doubt, are feeling like their their views and wishes are just being completely disregarded. Yeah. Which kind of leads me on to this, um, the next sort of segment of this show, and and so I know we're obviously we're looking at sort of democratic systems, whether they're sort of fit for purpose, but I suppose really. Sort of closely connected with this, the, the theme of this show. Um, there was an article on the Times website, um, and, and it is it's a couple of years old now. I think yeah, this is back uh, January twenty twenty again. And the title was "A Trust Paradox: New Report Finds Distrust in Capitalism, Government, and Global Institutions, Despite a Strong Economy." So, like I said, this is probably just before the pandemic really kind of took off. Um, so despite sort of the first world countries sort of doing you know doing obviously quite well um but there's there is this distrust amongst the masses in in cap- in capitalism in government in the global institutions um 
So, so I'll, I'll read through the opening paragraph. It says, um, a new report has found widespread distrust in societal institutions. Um, this phenomenon is known as a trust paradox. The report concluded that people's fears about the future are driving this trend and proposed institutions prioritise balancing competence with ethical behaviour to rebuild public trust. So this report, the Trust Barometer, the Trust Barometer 2020 report, was conducted uh, by the communications firm Elderman, uh, which has been running uh, this survey for the past 20 years. And the barometer, which aims to survey trust and credibility around the world, is usually released around the time of Davos. So obviously we, we actually did a show around that, so it kind of ran at the beginning of the year. Um, and so the survey was, the, the sample was quite decent so the 20 that the, the 2020 barometer that I've surveyed over 34,000 people across 28 countries and so it says despite the strong global economy as i said it did happen back in january 2020 the report found that 56% of respondents believe capitalism as it exists today does more harm than good in the world and fewer than one in three people in developed markets said that they believe that they and their families uh, will be better off in 5 years the report found that globally, 83% of employees are worried about losing their jobs to reasons including automation, a looming recession, lack of training, uh, and the gig economy. Um, now, I, I'm, this is back in January 2020, so I'm just thinking, my gosh, when, you know, when, they're when, thinking the, when, when they're thinking <laughs> now, with the, obviously the aftermath of the pandemic, mm. not to mention the sort of conflict happening in Eastern, Eastern Europe. Um, but uh, so that, that, I mean that's why it's called they've, they've termed it the sort of the this com- this communications com- uh, firm Enderman he, they've called it a, a, we're living in a trust paradox. Mm. Um, so since since he says the the, the CEO Richard Elderman says since we began measuring the trust twenty years ago, economic growth has fostered rising trust, but this continues in Asia and Middle East, but not in the developed markets where national income inequality is now the more important factor. So that was interesting. I suppose if you compare it with sort of the up-and-coming emerging markets, um, yeah, China, India, but it's the people in, across these first world countries that are, are, are getting nervous. And, I'm, and, and, you know, I almost feel like was this... It feels... It does feel like a precursor to sort of... It's interesting reading this now. This is something sort of the view back in January 2020, looking at the world as it is today. In some ways, it feels like it could be predicted, mm. you know, and that's probably what's led to the rise of nationalism. Well, well yeah. You, uh, yeah, I was just I was looking through the the same article, and the, and the next bit goes on to say the barometer found that none of the four institutions it asked about government, businesses, NGOs, and the media are trusted. Yeah, and wealthier, more educated individuals trusted institutions more than the rest of the population, a gap it describes as the mass class trust divide. Yeah. And the report found that this divide reached record levels in record numbers yeah. in, a, in a record number of countries. Yeah. People are not happy, I suppose, with their living situation at the moment. Yeah. And and the first thing they, they will do is turn to the government. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think the distrust in businesses has probably always been there. Yeah. Um, Media, the way the media is forming now and over the sort of last decade, yeah. people are now recognizing through um, means such as Twitter and other social media sites that the media is selective, yeah. um, and they're and and they're being fed selective news. Yeah. Um, and I think people are just opening their eyes up to yeah. to some of these things, uh, which they wouldn't necessarily have had the means 
to recognize before and people are recognizing it now because yeah because they can see it now yeah no, no, no absolutely which, which pretty much brings me to the sort of the last article that i wanted to sort of reflect on in this the first half of this show and this this was an interesting article this is an article was published quite recently actually on the 18th of july um on the guardian website um the title is the big idea should we have a truth law um now this is really interesting and uh, you know you can you can see you know <laughs> the sort of the drive for this article given the, obviously the recent uk political scene um but it was I, I it was really really interesting because i couldn't help but think by the end of it i, I thought it was a fantastic idea <laughs> to be honest <laughs> um he gives uh, the author uh, I mean, to give credit to the author for this, um, the author was Sam Foles. Um, I mean, he's kind of the opening sort of the opening paragraph here is, you know, today's politicians mislead with impunity. Could we legislate to stop them lying? And he cites numerous examples, um, you know, just over the, you know, just over the last decade, even from, you know, you know just going backwards. Uh, it, it doesn't even start from from Boris Johnson's sort of ever, even from David Cameron's. Um, but 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 I, like I said, I don't think it's unique to any one political party. I really don't. Um, you know, it's happened before uh, under Labour governments as well. Um, but you know, I, I, he he writes some powerful statements. I'll read one where he says, "Truth is democracy's most important moral value." You know, we he says we work out our direction as a society through public discourse. Power and wealth confer an advantage in this. The more people you can reach. Uh, by virtue of enjoying easy access to media, um, the more likely you are to bring others around to your point of view. The rich and powerful may be able to reach more people, but if their arguments are required to conform to reality, we can at least hold them to account. Truth is a great leveller. I, I think that's fantastic. Uh, you know, you can't fault them on that. And I think, I think the politicians in this day and age, uh, I say, unfortunately, if I if, if I was to say that they will always be found out yeah. because of the way yeah. um, a society is now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas previously, m- maybe you wouldn't have seen yeah. or, or so blatantly understood the lies. And now it's it's, it's it, near enough impossible to hide from it. Mm. And we see that in our leadership now. We see, we've see we seen that over the last couple of years, mm. um, how the public has reacted to lies. Um, you know, COVID is, is a perfect example. Yeah. Um, and what what else is that going to do if not if not yeah you know make people lose trust yeah exactly I, I, you know towards the end of his article he's you know he, he's really serious about it and he says it's as radical as it may seem you know we we already have tools to make this work within established law and so and the, and the author is actually a barrister and he says you know that the term publish has a clear legal meaning um, you know, and he says tests of willfulness or negligence are frequently applied across civil and criminal law. So determining whether someone has misrep- misrepresented information, i.e. not telling the truth, is often the core business of the courts. And he says the penalty for misconduct can go all the way up to life imprisonment, um, which, you know, obviously that would scare. It would certainly would scare politicians if they were, ever, you know, given that sort of threat. Uh, but he sort of counter, you know, he gives a counter. Where he says, I imagine there'll be two main objections to this idea. And the first, he says, it may have a chilling effect on parliamentarians' free expression. But that's, I mean, and even he he himself kind of says that that's, 
that's quite sad. I mean, if, they, if t- for, for people, people use that argument that they won't, they they won't feel they'll feel like their their freedom. They can't express them. Yeah, which I think is I think that's ridiculous. Yeah, of course. If you're lying, you're lying. Yeah, you're lying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he even if so- you need to express yourself yeah. through lies. Yeah. Then you shouldn't be the one. <laughs> you're in the wrong job. Yeah, exactly. He says, um, he says, I quote: "As a barrister, I'm subject to telling the tell. I'm subject to truth-telling rules, which, if breached, could end my career, uh, and potentially to prosecution for contempt of court." He says, and this I think is fantastic: politicians' words have more influence than barristers, so it's fair to subject them to more exacting standards. And it's true. I mean, if you think about it, a barrister obviously defending their sort, of, you know, their, their a client, um, but a politician is actually talking about matters that affect the direction of a country. Um, yeah, I, that's it. well. We see, we, we we already see it in finance, for example. Yeah. If if there's misrepresentation, yeah, or if there's any sort of manipulation or anything like that, yeah. there's laws that sort of protect the financial situation um institutions yeah um why would you not do that why why yeah. why should that not apply yeah to those pe those very people who yeah. are standing yeah. and saying and making promises yeah and telling the public that okay the way you live your lives and the way your children are going to live their lives yeah are making promises which directly affect that but yet they shouldn't be hold, held to the same standards it, it's astonishing exactly he gives a second reason why he thinks this wouldn't work and he says he says any truth law would breach what is known as a term known as parliamentary privilege um, this essentially guarantees that MPs will not be prosecuted for anything they say in parliament so you obviously you hear for, you know, various famous cases where an MP has said something or divulged something um, and they can't be sort of sued for libel or anything like that and um, but you know, if you think about the context for this, this this sort of convention parliamentary privilege, it says that rule was developed to stop monarchs prosecuting their political opponents. So we're talking about sixteen hundreds and all that. Um, he said, and this is fantastic. He says it was never intended to be a license to lie, <laughs> and I think that's fantastic. I think it really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, I mean that's uh, that's pretty much our sort of assessment on the on the on the on the situation of of um, of the way politics is working at the moment. But um, we're moving to this, the second half of the show, where and as 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 with all episodes of Pathway to Peace, where we start to kind of examine so what exactly is the sort of Islamic perspective um, on 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 the issue at hand. So we look at this topic, uh, looking at democracy. And obviously, people may or may not be aware of this, but in Islam, there's no one particular, you know, specific political system hmm. that's been advised. Favorite, yeah. yeah, if if anything, if anything, it does talk. It actually does. It does lend more sort of weight towards democracy, and we'll we'll, we'll see some verses why that's the case. But essentially, Islam gives people free choice to adopt any system of rule that suits them. The Quran prescribes two principles of governance, um, which are present in democracies as well, and, and, and leaves the rest to the people to decide. And the first principle is this known as the Arabic word known as adl, which is absolute justice. And the second is uh, the term is known as mushra, which is consultation. Um, and, and, and if you think about it, consultation inherent within that is sort of the, the basis. Getting of, the viewpoints of yeah. Exactly. We've got, yeah. there you go, it's kind of democracy. But yet Islam is flexible and it allows for democracy, monarchies, tribalism and other forms of government as long as they meet the requirements of absolute justice and consultation. Um, 
so there's some really some remarkable verses when you think about obviously the, the Quran, the Holy Quran. You know, be, as Muslims, we believe it is, it is the holy word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. You know, so advice, you know, directives, guidance given almost, you know, fifteen hundred years ago, and we're hearing almost like the golden principles um, of of of, of have, even how a twenty first century functioning democracy, you know, should be working. Um, so. The, I'll, I'll just read a few verses here. So from chapter 16, verse 91, it reads, Indeed, God requires you to abide by absolute justice, treat with kindness, and give like the giving of kin to kin. So it sets, it's kind of sets a very high high standard there. Um, but when we sort of look at, um, we look at matters of, of consultation, um, from chapter 3, verse 160, it states, And consult them in matters of administration. And when thou art, when thou art determined... Then put thy trust wholly in God. Surely God loved those who put their trust in Him. So there's a, this consultation came first. This element of consult first, and then put your trust in God. I think it's maybe slightly off topic. I think the wisdom um, the Islamic teachings bring yeah. they they amaze me. I think it takes me back to we we've done a show on this previously. Is the the, the abolition of slavery? Yeah where it wasn't just completely um, open the doors yeah. and cancel something. There was wisdom behind it to yeah. allow sort of uh, those involved, involved in slavery or who, who were enslaved, yeah. upskill them, teach them, um, and help them integrate into society. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you, when, you, when, you were mentioning, when you were mentioning that Islam doesn't prescribe a specific form of sort of government or democracy or whatever it is yeah it's because it allows humans to use their wisdom to understand the situation that they're living in, mm. in at the time and what's best for them yeah. and i think sometimes we as a society we sort of trap ourselves into we've seen over the last sort of um sort of couple of decades now this freedom of expression and yeah. and, and and these freedoms which seem to be yeah. thrown around everywhere yeah that that's actually Caught, it's basically made made us unstuck actually in yeah. some places because yeah. there's no wisdom behind yeah. how that actually is rolled out into society and that's what Islam says with um, I suppose how 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 you're sort of governing a country or or a people that yeah. there has to be justice yeah there has to that that has to be the golden principle the yeah. golden rule yeah is justice and then you can build your framework around that yeah exactly but when when that isn't your golden rule yeah. You're then building it around what we see now, yeah, right? Yeah, which exactly. is either economy or yeah. whatever it may be. Yeah, um, and that's when you see dissatisfied people because they, because they can see they can see the sort of the hypocrisy, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and I think that's yeah. what's beautiful about about is- Islamic teaching, and I think that's what people. Obviously, have a misconception. A lot of people have this misconception that Islam is a very um, okay tough, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 very um, yeah, yeah, old school religion, and it doesn't. Yeah. But but actually, it, it has some beautiful teachings, and this yeah. is one of them, which is just yeah. just understand yeah. the situation you're living in and what works best for you. Yeah. And dare I say, going into foreign policy, where sort of countries have tried to 
implement their sort of processes and procedures yeah. into other and you can clearly see that hasn't worked islam provides a perfect example for that it's justice yeah it doesn't matter what process you follow it doesn't matter what infrastructure you bring in yeah your ultimate goal has to be justice yeah no absolutely on that very topic um we've managed to find uh, an audio clip um given by the late uh, Hazrat Mr. Tahir Ahmed who was the fourth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community um, who wrote quite extensively on, on sort of topics around sort of uh, um, the sort of political systems um, and, and even kind of social issues as well um, there was a fantastic uh, lecture which is now converted into a book called Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues um, and there's a sort of a, a whole chapter dedicated to attaining political peace um, so a lot of our sort of research and sort of notes has kind of come from that chapter. There was a, a question that was put to him around sort of his views on the state of democracy um, that we see today. Um, the interview itself was conducted in the 90s. But when you hear you, when you hear his views, you can't help but think oh, not much has changed mm. e- e- even now, even sort of, you know, you know, you know 20, 30 years on. Um, so let's have a listen to what he had to say. It is done at the higher level without consulting the people. At best, they consult the members of the parliament. The very top of democracy is cabinet, the cabinet, ministers, etc. They also try to hide things as much as they can, even from the parliament. And the parliament, when it's brought into confidence, discusses the matter without consulting the people at large. And many a time they do not go to the... It's impossible for them to go to the people and to find out the overall opinion. People express sometimes their opinion by riots, by burning tires in the streets. So that's a different language which the people use. But in normal day-to-day decision-making, people are not involved. That is why in many cases in democracy, the decision-making has no link with the opinion of the masses who are many a time prepared for that decision which has already been taken through the media. They present things in a manner that the common people are misled. And after the event is over, in which a decision was taken high up, then they let those things after a few years be known to the people when it's too late. So democracy is unmanageable in that respect and it has to go wrong. There's no way you can keep it on the right path because <coughs> the decision-making even at the level of whom you give your vote is done by such principles of a party which guide which make the rules. You give votes to a party, and even if the man to whom you give your vote is wrong, still you have to give your vote to the party. And that is why so many different wrong people are elected. Never in democracy you go for the right person, you go for the right policies. And once you think you have given your vote to the right policies, then the policy makers are free from you and they can play havoc with the policies and everything they like. Moreover, sometimes the difference between the party in power and the party in opposition 
is very small. Say if 300 make the government, 300 of the House of Parliament make the government, if there are 270 who do not agree with them, they become the opposition and they become... And each cries out that our decision is right. How can the people of the country know? How can they judge? And this party comes to power after a few years who disagrees with all the decision-making of the, of the party in government. So what, do you, what do you suggest? What, what happened? Were they wrong in their policies altogether because a new party has emerged? And if the new party makes certain decisions and it is not returned next time, what is the trust left in democracy? They go on changing their policies, changing decisions, calling them right, each one, and the people do not know what's happening. They are all fighting for power. That is what democracy is. Each one is aspiring for power, and uh, it is seldom that some good people are returned, and uh, goodness is also added to the decision-making. But the majority in some governments from, for instance, in the newly developed countries, is a total fraud. They go not only for power, but for money. Power hunting is common in policies of the advanced countries and less advanced countries. So when power hunting is the purpose, how can you go right in democracy? Sometimes you know that the scene will be wrong, it will be against the country because the people who are elected, who are more, they are more educated and though more intellectual. But the messages are misled by others, by other propaganda machines. And they want something to happen which is not good for them. The government will not resign. They will follow those whom they lead in such wrong decisions which have been imposed on the country for many other political reasons or by a mafia of people who go only for their money, the amassing of their money, they do not care what happens to the country. Sometimes these decisions are made because of the influence of a foreign country which may be very small, like the Israelis, Israel, Israelis are, and the state of Israel is, yet they may grow very powerful even to dictate terms to America. So when you probe deeper and deeper, the democracy goes on evading you and disappearing into thin air. Nothing will be left of democracy. The Quran is a holy book, is a book of wisdom. It doesn't support any such democracy at all. What it advises is an advice which is universal. If followed, the whole world will be a different world of, of real a real paradise being created here on earth. It says, the Holy Quran says, وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَامُرُكُمْ بِالْعَدْلِ وَلَيْسَنَا إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَامُرُكُمْ أَن تُعَدُّ الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَهَ لِهَا وَإِذَا حَكَمْتُمْ بَيْنَ النَّاسِ أَن تَحْكُمُ بِالْعَدْلِ There's two things. They make the democracy of the Quran. To give your vote is a trust of Allah. To dispense with your vote in the favor of the one whom you think 
is the best worthy of this world, not to a party, not to a principle, not to a system, but to a person whom you consider to be good and worthy of delivering justice and honesty. Once you are elected by such votes, then you do not have to go to the voters for their wishes. Then the only principle which should guide you is, whenever you decide, you decide according to absolute justice. Whenever you decide, you decide with absolute justice. وَلَا يَدْرِمَنَّكُمْ شَنَانُ قَوْمٍ عَلَىٰ لَا تَعْدَلُوا اَيْدَلُوا هُوَ أَخْرَبُ لِلتَّقْوَىٰ Once you come to power, even the enmity prevailing between you and the people must not dissuade you from serving the cause of justice, be firm in disposing things with justice. No enmity should stand in the way of your disposing things with justice. Now, if this is democracy, show me what is wrong with it. It can never go wrong. There is no party system. There is a system of goodness and system of subservience to absolute justice. That is all the world knows, world requires. If any, in any country, the rulers, even if they are imported from some other country, pay homage to justice and adhere to justice, people would never like them to be removed. They want the ultimate of democracy to go, go in favor of absolute justice. The whole economy will improve everything in the, in, in the government making, will be transformed in favor of the country if they follow this rule of the Quran. So we just heard the, the words of the late uh, Hazrat Mr. Ahmed, the fourth caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, who was giving his views on his perspective on sort of the, the way democracies are functioning um, in the world. Um, and this, was at, this was at the time of, during the 90s, and to be fair, not much has changed even today. I thought, Shamdi, was quite amazing here, where you think in Islam, even as a, as the electorate, as the voter, there's a trust from an Islamic perspective. There's even a, a trust on us that we have been kind of given a trust that we should put in, you know, vote for that person who we think is, you know, is noble, you know, trustworthy, has good qualities. It's not so much about kind of towing the party line if you've always been a particular a supporter of that party just because your parents and your parents' parents because sometimes kind of voting kind of happens in those sort of mm. patterns don't they mm. it's sort of it's just the way our family have been doing it for years but the Islamic sort of viewpoint is no you know choose the candidate on, on sort of their sort of their moral compass basically yeah. yeah and I think yeah I was just um, you're, you're always thrown back when you hear the remarks of uh, of the Khalifa of the time and um, yeah, absolutely right. The onus is on the whole of society mm. to keep up this concept of justice, not just the leaders, but even in your sort of everyday actions. Mm. Um, and, and this is why uh has all ended with show me if this doesn't work. If this is followed, then show me how this cannot work. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a few things that um, picked up was that when has all said that, um, when his holiness said, whenever you make a decision, do it 
on the principles of justice and he and he mentioned that twice yeah and then he said even in even when it's against or around people that you may have enmity towards or you don't and where do we see that in today's society that yeah and this is islam um advising that you if you want to live in a peaceful society and you want the society at large to benefit um from you know living in 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 a peaceful society then even if you have a dislike towards a person or a party even at that point don't let sort of that power and that hunger dissuade you from yeah. justice and i thought that's just such a beautiful it's just such a beautiful teaching yeah. um yeah and you can't argue with those last words that if if this is applied yeah and show us if it, how it doesn't work absolutely well only for time reasons i'm afraid we have to bring this episode to a close but before we do, here's a quote from Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, the supreme head of the Muslim, MDA Muslim community, the fifth caliph, where he sums up the golden principle of governance, be it at a local, national or even international level. This principle, which if which adhered to, can lead to a more peaceful society. He says, A golden principle given by the founder of Islam, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, is that a true Muslim should like for others what he likes for himself. I believe that this simple and profound point, if acted upon, not just by Muslims, but by all people, is the means for everlasting peace in society. No doubt, everyone desires peace for themselves and their loved ones, but most people will be lying if they claim that they want their opponents and competitors to have peace and to live with contentment. Yet this is the standard of nobility and generosity of spirit that Islam requires. It is a religion and teaching that promotes selflessness and urges humans to discard all traces of selfishness. The principle given by Islam's prophet, peace be, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, is that a person should be open-hearted and pure of mind. Instead of desiring only the best for himself, a person should desire the same for others as well. Sadly, in today's world, we tend to see the opposite. Modern society is consumed by self-interest and greed. Disorder, conflict and warfare are on the rise and the principles of equity and justice are being consistently discarded. This is illustrated by the foreign policies of many powerful countries. It has been a constant theme of modern history that dominant powers have sent their armies to distant lands on the pretext of establishing peace, but time has proven that their real objective has been to protect and enhance their vested interests. During such conflicts, if just one of their soldiers dies, there is an outpouring of grief and they pledge to take revenge. Yet when their bombs or munitions cause the death of hundreds or even thousands of innocent civilians, including defenceless women and children, they remain silent and do not express any hint of regret or remorse. The consequences of such injustice are extremely damaging and far-reaching. The local people see that their lives are deemed to be far less well-off and value their lives of those who are from powerful nations. As they observe the dark double standards and the lack of humanity, they become overcome by frustration, anger and resentment and their emotions threaten to boil over at any time. The peace and security of such nations lie in ruins but the rest of the world would be foolish to think that they will not be affected. Rather, the world is now so interconnected that the ramifications of hostilities in one part of the world are bound to spread beyond borders and we have seen many examples of this in recent years. Hence, if we genuinely desire peace, whether in our personal lives or at a collective level, the pivotal point is that we should like for others 
what we like for ourselves. As I said before, this simple principle is the foundation for true peace in the world. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Pathway to Peace. We're back same time next week. I've been your host, Kaleem Anwar, and thank you to my co-presenter, Shams Najim. You can comment on today's programme through Twitter by tweeting at Voice of Islam UK. Peace be upon you.